It's that time of the week again, Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris. Thanks for joining me again. This week's guest is really freaking interesting. Uh, Dr. Tanya Lerman teaches at Stanford. She's a psychological anthropologist. Um, she is interested in this this place where belief and reality merge and separate and flow and uh, butt up against one another. She's best known for her studies of modern-day witches, charismatic Christians, and psychiatrists. She's the Watkins University professor in the anthropology department at Stanford University. Very smart woman working on some fascinating stuff. Um, But before we get to that, Let's talk about some things that are sort of tangentially related. Uh, but before I, before I even talk about it much, let me just play a piece of music for you. This is an extraordinary uh, piece of music. When I first arrived in Spain back in 1989-1990, um, one of the first things I noticed about Spanish culture that really stood out to me as being notably different from American culture was what I came to refer to as tolerance for ambiguity, that the the Spanish have a very high tolerance for ambiguity, things that in the United States we would want to nail down, define, clarify. In Spain, they just sort of let it roll. And I noticed this a lot. I got a motorcycle and I noticed a lot traffic laws and parking. There were lots of places where it wasn't really clear to me whether it was cool to park there or not. And I saw people parking their cars in ways that in the United States, clearly your car would be towed within minutes. And in Spain, they didn't seem to be having a problem. But when I tried to talk to people about it, you know, say, well, is it is it really cool to park like that right on the corner with your car sort of jutting into the intersection? People would look at me like, well, yeah, yes and no. That's the thing. In Spain, yes, yes or no is an acceptable answer to many questions. <laughs> and to my American mentality, yes or no, just that's not an answer. That's We're still asking the question if yes or no is what we're saying here, right? Um, I remember going to a, a police officer once. I, I, I pulled my bike up onto the Ramblas. If you've been to Barcelona, you know, the Ramblas is this pedestrian avenue sort of and lots of people there, lots of cops, lots of pickpockets. It's sort of a happening spot. And... Uh, so I pulled my bike up, and there are lots of motorcycles parked along there under the trees and stuff. And so I was parking my bike, and I looked over, and there's this cop standing there. And I thought, well, I don't know about this. So I walked over, and I said to him, hey, is it cool to park my motorcycle here? And he said, um, no, but normally we'll give you the vista larga, which means no, but normally we overlook it. Can you imagine getting an answer like that from a cop in the U.S.? Hey, can I park here? Uh, not officially, but, you know, whatever. Don't worry about it. You probably won't get a ticket. <laughs> I don't think so. Anyhow, so the music I'm going to play from you for you is 
by uh, a musician known as El Principe Gitano, which uh, I guess translates to the Gypsy Prince. He was a Spanish singer who um, loved Elvis Presley. And this is a recording that he did on Spanish TV. Uh, I'll, I'll provide the link to the video at chrisryanphd.com. Go to the, the Tangentially Speaking page and you'll see it there. Here is El Principe Gitano singing Elvis Presley's In the Ghetto. And there's no fry On the calling great Chicago moon Baby Benny Charlie's born is in the ghetto In the ghetto And the hard mama cry Cause if he wants it or she don't need angry mouth in the ghetto Piponjo on the time the chili he'll be hard, and he'll grow beyond the young To get look at you and me, I wish you bright to see. They will simply turn and win and hold on the way. Where the The Welgen, Heikiliti, Wui, Reni, Bush, Please, Street, Wai, Blues, in the Ghetto. And the Hangai Ben. So she started to run a street, Nile, just to feel he found face in the Ghetto. The one and the pression the young man break away. A kiss I can still carry. He'll turn one street far. He won't mama cry. At the ground and the one street, young man face down the street and find the ghetto. And the young man dies. cries. All right, this introduces the question of whether or not you need to um, know the words to a song in order to sing it, or even to speak the language in which the song is written in order to sing it. Before I lived in Spain, I would have said, of course you have to speak the language. After being in Spain for so long and, and, and being with people in cars who were singing along to songs that they did not understand at all, just sort of making noises 
that approximated whatever the song was, whatever the lyrics were, uh, I got used to it. And, um, and I, you know, sort of like tobacco in joints, you know, you get used to it after a while and it becomes normal. And, uh, at this point I, I feel like the literalism of American society is the limit, not the flexibility and tolerance for ambiguity of Spanish society. Uh, what the hell does that have to do with anything, you might ask? Well, I think you'll find that uh, it has a lot to do with the conversation I have with uh, Dr. Lerman because so much of what we're talking about is sort of in between consensus reality and uh, and private experience um, as so much of, of spiritual and psychological experience is. It's, it's both very intensely private and generated out of our consciousness on some level, and yet there are touchstones out in the world that we all sort of agree about. Uh, this week, there's this big thing going on with everybody freaking out about the dress on Twitter. Is it white and gold or is it black and blue or whatever the colors were? Um, the It depends on how your brain processes information, how you see that. And so I guess this whole thing is all these things are related how you see the world is partly about the world and largely about you and whether or not el principe gitano was capturing the essence of in the ghetto depends whether you're listening to the words or you're responding to the emotion in any case i think it's hilarious before we get to my conversation with Dr. Lerman, uh, a few things to talk about here. First of all, uh, as always, a shout out to Shore Design T-Shirts, shoredesigntshirts.com. If you use the code SEXATDAWN, you get 10% off your entire order. Uh, they supply all the shirts that uh, my mom ships out from sunny Los Angeles uh, thanks to all of you who've been placing orders for shirts. That's great. Mom loves it, keeps her busy, and, uh, you know, she loves to be part of uh, Sexaton Enterprises or whatever the hell this is, <laughs> tangentially speaking, Inc. Um, anyway, so uh, thanks to Sure Design T-shirts. I'm phasing out the advertising, as you know, um, but I will always be uh, sending out thanks both vocally and silently to Shore Design t-shirts because they have been so cool since the beginning of this thing. And Carsey Blanton, of course, I get emails every week from people saying, hey, who is that? Who wrote that song that you play at the end? That's fantastic. That's Carsey Blanton. Go to her page, carseyblanton.com. And um, she's got a tip jar there where you can download stuff. Uh, the opening music is by Basin and Range. You can find their stuff at basinandrangeband.com. And the sound files are mastered by Danny Osment at emeraldcitypro.com. Which leads me to uh, this week's big announcement, which is that Danny has set up a webpage uh, for supporting artists that uh, whose work you appreciate 
It's uh, it's a lot like Patreon.com, but um, he's tweaked some things and, and made it, uh, I think, a little more um, user-friendly. Anyway, the website is uh, fundwhatyoulove.com, fundwhatyoulove.com. And uh, if you go there, you'll see it's, it's I mean, it's very fresh off uh, out of the oven. Um, in fact, I've been sort of helping Danny this week uh, deal with some, you know, user issues and whatever. But I think we've got it squared away. And we've got uh, one of the campaigns you'll see there is Tangentially Speaking. So rather than signing up for the premium uh, account and all that, if you've already done it, that's cool. That'll continue, you know, for a year, or six months or a month or whatever you uh, you signed up for. But if you haven't, uh, I've been encouraging people to wait. Um, if you want to support the podcast, if you're able to support the podcast financially, that would be most appreciated uh, since I'm really not making any money from this and it takes up a lot of time that I should be using writing that damn book that uh, people keep telling me to finish and I will. Uh, but uh, it takes a lot of time, uh, it takes a lot of effort lining up these interviews, recording them, you know, producing them, doing these rants and, you know, the mashups and it's uh, it's a time sink for sure. So, if you enjoy the podcast, you want to support it, please, uh, if you can afford it, uh, go to fundwhatyoulove.com and you'll see the Tangentially Speaking link. And I've set it up so it's a monthly um, patronage system. So you can say, okay, I'll uh, I'll throw in uh, five bucks a month for the podcast or 10 bucks or 20 or whatever. They're different levels. And uh, so it's a, it's a recurring tip jar sort of situation. So if the podcast, if you say, you know what, um, I'd pay a buck an episode for that podcast or 125 or whatever it is. I think I've got it set for like $5 for one of the the levels, but you can put in whatever you want. You can say a dollar, you can say 50 cents, you can say, you know, whatever, but there are different levels like that correspond to buying me a, buy me a beer, buy me a coffee, buy me this, buy me that, whatever. Um, so, and you'll see that there are uh, rewards and bonuses and all that if you want that kind of stuff. Um, I'm going to do some video uh, podcasts. I'm going to do some, you know, you get a t-shirt at a certain level. Uh, you get a signed copy of the book if you want that at a different level. There are different things. There's bonus material I'll be putting together. Um, stuff from the book that I've written that I can't really use in the book, but I still think it's good. I'll uh, do some of that, more personal stuff. Uh, you also have access to Talking Out My Ass, the uh, the other podcast I do that's mainly about my travels and bizarre experiences over the years. So anyway, go to fundwhatyoulove.com and look at Tangentially Speaking. You'll see uh, it'll explain itself there. So we're going to try that. That's the way we're going to try to uh, support the podcast, have it be listener-only, um, audience-supported. That way, there's no bullshit. There's no dealing with advertisers. There's no you know, worrying about offending this person or that person or that interest or this. It's just you and me. That's it. You, me, and this week's guest, which is Dr. Tanya Lerman this week. 
I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. It was really a privilege to be able to speak to her. She's a columnist at the New York Times. As I mentioned before, she's a professor at Stanford. She's a very busy person. She's, um, you know, writes books. Uh, so she's not a person who's got a lot of time for stuff like this. And I really appreciate that she uh, set some aside uh, for us. Thanks. Talk to you next week. I'm very happy to be speaking with uh, Dr. Tanya Lerman. Is that correct? The pronunciation? Yeah, that's right. Good. Um, you know, your, your work is so interesting to me. I've uh, lived all over the world, and my wife uh, speaks seven languages and has a very multicultural background. And this question of how people in different cultures experience very intimate things like mm-hmm. dreams and uh, what we call psychosis is something that I find just fascinating. And that's exactly where your work seems to be focused these days. That's right. So thank you for, for joining me. I guess my first question is, is there something in your personal background that led you into this? Or is it just sort of academic happenstance that this is where you find yourself these days? Well, I grew up sort of religiously between many different ways of experiencing God. So my my mother is the the daughter of a Baptist minister, and she grew up less connected to the church. It's commonly often the case with um, pastor's kids. Uh, Her sister remained quite, her two sisters remained quite uh, committed. And so so my cousins are, are, are deeply conservative Christians. Um, my father grew up as the son of a Christian scientist, and uh, you know that's a kind of faith in which you become so committed to the power of prayer that you um, believe that you should not consult a, a doctor when you're ill, because a, a, a person of faith should never fall ill. Well, my father went to medical school, and I myself, uh, we lived in an Orthodox neighborhood outside New York when I was young an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And so, you know, I would sometimes go to people's homes on the on the Sabbath and turn on and off the electricity for them. And if you're um, if you're a, a uh, observant Jew, you don't touch electricity or money or you know, anything that seems to smack of work um, between Sunday and Friday, Sunday and Sat- Sunday down Saturday. And but it's totally fine to have a little goyish girl come over and do that. And so <laughs> You know, so I grew up with all of these wise, good people with very different understandings about what fundamentally counted. Yeah, that's fascinating. Very interesting. And so here you are now sort of at the nexus of different belief systems and studying them from a scientific perspective. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Is is there, I, I mean, the, the thread, at least in the story you just told, is the some sort of connection between belief and uh what can i say here uh sort of a belief in in non-tangible reality and mental health issues so my dad's a psychiatrist so i grew up with stories of people so you know here i was all these people with different religious perspectives but it was clear that some people were not you know not it wasn't the case that everything was equally valid. There are clearly people who were also ill. I, I think of my interest these days as an interest in, in, in invisible others. Mm. Um, so how, you know, so there's some invisible others that people 
want to connect with, and there are other invisible others that people really wish they did not connect with. And I think that there are, you know, individual variations in the way people manage their experience, and there are, you know, practice variations, and there are cultural variations. So um, I'm increasingly interested in the difference in the way of, in, in the way that people think about thinking, and the way that that process uh, shapes their experience of you know of God and of distressing voices. Those are different kinds of phenomena, I should say. I mean, I think that the that's an important point that uh, when people are ill, they're typically having experiences they really don't want, and uh, typically, you know, they're not the only ones to know that. Um, they have, you know, family members, observers think that there's something going on that they want to intervene in. And typically when people are experiencing God, they want more of that. They want um, more confidence, more experience, more involvement with God. And so there, I think of psychosis and religiosity as sort of different sides of the, of the problem. That's interesting because your your framing of God as a positive experience that people want more of, isn't that in conflict with the sort of angry, jealous Old Testament God? Yeah, I don't think people wanted more of him. (laughs) (laughs) But but they believed in him, right? I mean, they're sort of the basis of Western religion is that God is this capricious, nasty entity. Well, not all the time. So the Hebrew Bible is actually has this, you know, has this pretty complex model of God. So you have, you know, Elohim, or maybe many gods who, you know, are sitting there and looking at the waters and, and the earth and saying that creation is good. And you, then you've got this Yahweh guy who gets angry at his creatures and turfs them out of the garden. Yeah. So you have, you know, many different representations of God. And God in the Hebrew Bible in some ways, is a, is, a, is a wonderful, loving God, just not all the time. I, I, Robert Wright has made this argument that I think is really true, which is that over the course of time, God gets nicer, so that over, you know, in the broad sweep of human history, as, we, as our human peoples move from being pastoralists to being agriculturalists, so being when they move from having herds to um, you know having agriculture to the industrial revolution to today, God generally gets nicer. And so these days, um, God is um, in certain kinds of Christianity. At any rate, arguably a quarter of all Americans believe in this kind of Christianity. You know, God is unconditionally loving. He's just wonderful. He's just this great, big, mighty teddy bear in the sky. And not all Christians agree with that representation, but they often recognize that this is the way that many American Christians imagine God these days. That's a God you want more of. So, you know, to me, I think that um, the human involvement with God is sort of driven by two different kinds of human systems. One is more about fear and a worry that the world is going to come around and snuff you out. And if only you could figure out how to control something, you'd protect yourself a little against that. And the other is um, attachment, love. And if only, you know, our irrepressible um, 
sort of yearning for relationships. And I think those interact with the way we imagine God over the course of our history. I'm sure I'm not the first to notice that the description you just gave sounds an awful lot like a child's relationship with a mother and a father in a sort of typical nuclear family setting. But, you know, the father's sort of distant and a little feared, respected, but, you know, he can, he can turn on you and punish you and so on. And the mother more unconditional, nurturing love and attachment. So that's really interesting. I think that that may be an American model of a, of a well, no, is that, that's certainly not an Amer- just an American model of a family. I, mean, I, I guess the way I think of it is the, the difference between, you know, uh, the way that our, you know, why is it that um, we see human faces everywhere? We're anthropomorphizing all the time. Um, we... Um, you know, we, we see faces in the clouds in one famous description, you know, as we see faces on fire hydrants, we're constantly importing meaning into the world. Well, one argue that, well, the best argument to explain why that's true, and this is independent of the question of whether there actually is a God, but, you know, the, 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 this is the question of why humans have um, emerged so that they have this pretty basic tendency to see meaning and to see faces and to see agents. Well, that argument says that when our ancestors were roaming around on the savannah in small groups and terribly vulnerable, the people who were more likely to survive were the people who reacted to an, an, uh, an ambiguous noise as if it might be an agent. And the way people usually frame this story is um, if you know, if you hear a rustling in the bushes and you treat it like it's nothing, um, it's it's fine. If you hear rustling in the bushes and you treat it like there's something and there's nothing there, you just look like a little silly. If you hear a rustling in the bushes and there's something really there and you ignore it, you could be lunch. And so there's this real sense that, you know, our the cognitive apparatus we've inherited is one in which we're over-interpreting agency. So that's where the, I think the one piece comes from. I think the other piece comes from the fact that we are intensely social animals. And, um, you know, and arguably there is something that we just, you know, want to connect to each other and experience that love. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I, I you mentioned invisible others earlier. I wanted, I didn't want to let that slip by. Um, I guess you're talking very much about what most people would call spirits. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, yeah? Yeah. Have you are you familiar with um, Terence McKenna or the, the literature around people in using massive doses of hallucinogens and the, the sort of consistent spiritual presences that they've noted so i i think that's kind of a cool um perspective i I don't really know that work so much because i'm i tend to be more fascinated by what humans can do without aids but it's certainly true that it is a powerful piece of the you know so people who use ayahuasca and who use lsd spiritually do experience many spirits you know i i myself i don't pass judgment about on whether the spirits are actually there um i'm interested in 
um, the fact that there are some constraints on the kinds of spirits people experience. Mm. And there are, and I'm also interested in the work people do to enable themselves to experience the spirits as real. I mean, I think there's a sense in which belief is easy and a sense in which belief is hard. There's something about the human mind that um, has evolved so that when we interact with the world, particularly when things are ambiguous or uncertain, we're more likely to very quickly generate ideas about supernatural presence. I mean, it just happens to, to humans. On the other hand, it's pretty hard to really have the sustained commitment to the interacting presence of those spirits. So, uh, you know, that's what you see in the history of Christian spirituality. People are constantly talking about, you know, trying to feel closer to God, trying to truly behave as if you somehow truly took it seriously that you were in relationship with, with your creator. And um, so both of those are true. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. You, you, you were talking about using um, AIDS, or, you know, mm-hmm. external AIDS like ayahuasca or different hallucinogens. And yet, um, isn't ritual itself an aid? Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that you have to uh, accept the fact that faith is hard is that there's no other way to make sense of these, of the fact that people do 40-hour rituals to, you know, to heal somebody or to uh, make God present. I mean, it's just something, you know, we build these huge buildings and spend an, an enormous amount of money creating these these spaces in which we come to encounter God. And that's, we need that. You know, it's, it's hard because it's, you know, we've also evolved to treat you know, persons as visible and minds as private and love as conditional upon right behavior, to take seriously as a piece of your everyday life that there is this supernatural being in relationship to you, you need constant reminders, constant practice, constant engagement. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Are you familiar with um, Ian Stevenson's work on reincarnation? Uh, no. Yeah, he's, he taught, I think he's, I think he's recently died. He's a psychiatrist who taught at, um, University of Virginia Medical School Mm -hmm. and sort of as a sideline, he did research on reincarnation. And as you can imagine, someone in that position doing that sort of research, he was, um, anxious, I think about. Um, not being taken seriously by his medical colleagues. So the the books that he published are very dry and uh, sort of hide the, uh, for me, hide the fascinating material behind this, you know, all the charts and the graphs and the, the very dry language. But essentially what he was doing was digging up cases of children who uh, told very detailed stories of their where they came from and who they were in their past life. And uh, in mainly in India, I think it was India, Brazil, and Lebanon were the three main countries where he focused his research. And with his team of graduate student assistants, uh, they would, they tracked down the, the, the person who died, who was reincarnated in this kid. Mm-hmm. And they, I think they, they have 15 to 20 
different cases where they verified this and they actually found there were were enough details in the four three or four year old kid's story that they were able to find the person very interesting Mm -hmm. research Mm -hmm. Um, anyway it's it's you know only tangentially uh related to what we're talking about what what do you think about placebo is placebo uh on some level, could we describe the placebo effect as as God's interaction? So I think that spiritual healing is could be described from a medical perspective as placebo. I mean, the word the word placebo is a terrible word because it suggests that there's nothing there and that's a false experience, mm. and that's clearly not you know, what what much effective spiritual healing is about. People aren't getting a sugar pill. They're participating in a ritual, or they're praying, or they're engaging with God. Um, You know, one of the things that we do know is that if um, you're religious, it's better off for your immune system, for your blood pressure, for, you know, it reduces your mortality in a variety of ways. I mean, so there's one... um, you know, there's one argument that it adds to to go to church every week adds two to three years to your life. Interesting. Now, now, do you think that's because of? Well, and maybe this question makes no sense, but I was going to say, do you think that's because of the religious practice, or is it because of the reduction in stress from being in a quiet place and being part of a community? Well, you know, those questions are great questions, and they're hard to answer. Yeah. Um, so what the data set has is like, did you go to church? You know, how often did you go to some religious service? Um, you know, I think there are probably a bunch of things that contribute. I think, you know, you might have orange juice at the service. Probably <laughs> useful. Um, yeah. you know, it's clear that social support is crucial. Um, you know, that's just one of the things that drives what it is to be human is relationships with other people. Um, it's clear that, you know, some sense that somebody else is in charge uh, reduces your stress. Um, so if you have, there's, there's work out there that suggests that if you pray to a God who's judgmental, your risk of, in, of mental illness increases the more you pray. Whereas if you pray to a God who is uh, loving and caring, then your risk of mental illness decreases the more you pray. So there's something pretty fundamental, I think, about these uh, the relationship with God as a relationship. And I think you can see that even back in the phase that we think of as being driven by an angry God. Not for everybody, but for some, for some people at some time. Hmm. Speaking of the the way God has changed over time, that I mean, in in terms of what you just talked about, and also the Robert Wright progression that you mentioned earlier, uh, what can we say about hunter gatherer gods? Is there a, a consistency among uh, animist belief systems? Um, no, I think that there is um, in the those hunter-gatherer groups that I know best, there's uh, sometimes a more distant sense of a deity and often a more intense emphasis on spiritual experience. So, um, 
you know, I'm speaking, I'm waving my hands, but but basically, I think that the those practices are more likely to involve trance practices and um, a current experience of the supernatural presence. Hmm. Okay. So, and w- when we talk about animism, when we talk about a hunter gatherer group that that sees a spirit of is it this that they see the spirit of a river or a spirit of water is you know what i mean is are there spirits of the sky or spirits of things in the sky i don't know if if there's any consistency in that i think there's a lot of variation so the uh some of the uh amazonian groups that have been currently much discussed uh, among my in my discipline anthropology um, what actually happens is that you have a religious expert who, who's the shaman, and the shaman tells you what's spiritual or not spiritual. Mm. And there are certain, you know, designated animals who um, have special abilities. And you might see the, you know, you might see the jaguar. You don't see the jaguar. The jaguar can turn into a human, or or it doesn't turn into a human. And so, um, I think it's it's. Um, you know, I th- so I don't know. I think that I, I think I, I suspect that there's more variation than we imagine, yeah. and that the European armchair interpretations of animist practice, um, so like Lucien Levy Brule, for example, you know, he was reading you know European travelers' descriptions of the behavior of so-called primitive people and speculating about the nature of their religious representation. So, you know, what is, what is clear is that people in throughout human history behave as if some, there are invisible others, um, and that certain, you know, stones or trees or, or, or rivers might be supernatural. And, um, Typically, when those are described, they are they become people-like, so that you don't interact with the flowing water, you interact with a people-like representation of the flowing water, who is the you know the the, the river god. Right, right. By the way, uh, I I have a lot of respect for any academic of your stature who has the courage to say I don't know occasionally. So, <laughs> so congratulations for that. It's uh, it's a rare thing. Are you familiar with Daniel Everett's work uh, with the Pinaha? Um, yeah, I've read one of one of his books. Did you, was it Don't Sleep There Are Snakes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that book. Um, and he talks about there's. Uh, I'm sure you remember this section. There, the people he's the Pinaha people see spirits across the river, mm-hmm. and they all they're all talking about them and pointing at them, and he can't see them. But mm-hmm. but I remember there was a point where one of his children who was living with with the vi- in the village there started to see them, and that really it confused him. And and as from my Western perspective, it was also very uh, shocking to think about that. Like to what extent? Because your the work that that brought you to my attention recently was the work uh, where you demonstrate that people in different cultures who hear voices hear them the voices are different depending on the culture mm-hmm. and i think it in india the voices tended to tell people to clean the house and things like that is that mm-hmm. right 
Whereas in, in the United States, it's more, you know, hurt yourself or hurt someone else, a lot of violence and, and nastiness. Right. And so relating that to Daniel Everett and his daughter, that it's, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's possible that, uh, that there are spirits that are visible in it to people whose brains have been shaped within a culture in which that's expected. So I, I don't go to the ontological question. So I leave that for others to, because people have different views and they, they come to very different conclusions. I think that, you know, what I can see is that different kinds of cultural invitations and different ways of thinking about thinking make it more or less likely that you will experience things one way or, an, or another. So with people who are, psycho- are psychotic, people, so that study of mine that you read about, these are people who are having quasi-auditory experiences. So they are, I and mean, it's clear that they're experiencing something that is different from what's experienced by people who don't have psychosis. And, there, and, and what I think we know is that what they're often actually experiencing is a mess of stuff. So you talk to people in detail and they hear, you know, good voices and bad voices and inside experiences and outside experiences and muffling and clarity and commands and all kinds of stuff. And I think what, you, what happens with your cultural expectations is that you start to pay selective attention to some of those patterns and so they probably they change over time it doesn't mean that they are radically different so a person who in india who has psychosis and hears their father telling them to pick up and do chores you know pick up the room do chores cook food um you know that is um that person may also be hearing all kinds of negative voices, but they, um, but those voices sort of are, are maybe less important, um, and they may be interpreting. You know, there's this interaction between the content that you give to some sensory experience and the nature of that experience. There's a, there's some kind of interaction, and so I think that that may change over time when people are not psychotic. And they're looking across the river and they're seeing something kind of ambiguous. There's still a really profound learning process. And I think you can see that in Daniel Everett. Um, people are, the, the spiritual leader is in effect teaching people what counts, um, what sort of signals to, to look for. Um, and I bet there's a pretty broad range in what people actually sensorially experience, um, but that the, the cultural invitation um, is is pretty important. Yeah, that that's a wonderful way of putting it, and it relates with your, I believe, your most recent uh, column in the New York Times. I just read a few days ago about how mental, what we call mental illness is being reframed and reconsidered at a very fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in some cases, maybe no longer being considered an illness. So while you were you were talking there, I was thinking, everyone hears voices, right? Mm-hmm. Whether we're, we consider ourselves psychotic or not, we all hear voices and auditory hallucinations are, I believe, the most common sort. 
and experienced by pretty much everyone. Mm-hmm. So what you say is absolutely correct. It's how it's framed in your culture. I remember reading, and who knows, maybe this was even your work. I remember reading years ago that in China, there's no cultural expectation that people start to lose memory as they get old. Mm-hmm. And they don't. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what's cause and effect there. Um, because of the dietary differences and, and exercise and all that. But it certainly seems something like that. I, you know, I noticed that the more uptight people are about losing memory, the more they focus on it, and then the more they experience it. Yeah, I mean, so I'm definitely all about the interaction. I think it's also important to remember that there, it, it's not that it's just interpretation. So one of the reasons you find these effects or you at least, to my knowledge, used to find these effects in India and China is that people just died faster. And so there are were fewer, literally fewer people who developed Alzheimer's. Um, it's, you know, in, in America, you have lots and lots of people who are living um, much, you know, into an age in which all sorts of things go wrong with your with your brain. And with mental illness, it's um, new rethinking certainly challenges the the value of diagnosis as a you know super tight useful distinction between people you know at the same time it's it's it would be a mistake to say that there's no difference between people who are ill and people who are are well i mean that's the nih observation that um, brains of people who are struggling with depression and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia look more like each other than, and, um, and more different from brains of people who are not struggling than they seem to carve out distinct categories. There's still something behavioral that is compelling. So there's still... You know, in, in the when you talk to a doctor, it's still kind of useful to have these these categories. Um, it may not help the person who's struggling to think of themselves in terms of having that category, and so I know that's a little complicated. But so, for example, what the British Psychological Society is arguing is not that people aren't ill. Um, there's often widespread recognition that the person who's coming to the doctor for for help is in trouble. And they want help. The, um, what they're arguing is that there's no good, sharp dividing line between health and illness. And there's no good, sharp dividing line between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And it may not help somebody to think of themselves as having schizophrenia. Well, it may, it may in fact hurt them, right? Exactly. We're, we're talking about the cultural framing of experience. If you tell mm-hmm. someone you're sick, especially if you tell someone you're psychotic, Mm-hmm. Uh, if they Google search psychosis, they're going to be scared to death, quite literally, possibly. And and that leads to, you mentioned shamanism earlier, and I wanted to get back to that, because my understanding of shamanism is that there are essentially two types of shaman, which is one who chooses to become the shaman, chooses to, to go through the, the rituals and the study, and the other who has no choice in the matter, who's called to shamanize. Well, I think in either event, the shaman needs training. Yeah, sure. So that's, both, that's... both need to go through the training. But my, my point is that the, the person who's called to shamanize 
Um, I don't know if you've read Black Elk Speaks, for example. Do you know that? No. It's it's very, I think you'd find it fascinating. It's a, sort of a classic of American Indian literature. And it's, uh, he was a Lakota uh, shaman who um, was, never saw white people until he was about uh, 13 or 14. And by the time he was 20, his culture was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but in that in his teens, he had what we would call a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. He, he had visions. He thought he could control the weather. He thought animals were speaking to him. He had all all this stuff going on. And he was in essentially what appears to be a coma for a few days. And mm-hmm. when he came out of the coma, he uh, explained these visions that he had to the shaman. And in the vision was very um, complex. There were horsemen riding into the village from the four directions and four different colored horses. And all the people were dancing around in a certain way. And it was this whole thing. So and he's the the guys like 13, 14, 15 at this age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what the what the shaman did was he arranged for the entire village to enact this boy's vision. Mm-hmm. Right. So so the boy sat in the middle of the village and everyone he knew participated in recreating this vision that he'd had. Mm-hmm. Now, you imagine the feeling of of love and inclusion and social acceptance and all that 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 boy must have felt. And then the rest of the story is I won't go into it and you know waste everyone's time here but he essentially led an incredible life of extreme mental stability he uh-huh. went he lived in different worlds in a way we can't even imagine i mean he he joined buffalo bills wild west show and ended up in in London and in France and then lost track of the troop and was abandoned by himself for several years alone in France. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who never saw white people, you know? It's mm-hmm. like being picked up by a UFO or something. Um, yeah. Anyway, my point is that uh, in many Native American cultures, what we call psychosis is to them... Uh, an indication that this is a person who can move between worlds? Well, yes and no. So everywhere in the world that we know, some people are designated as crazy. So that's just, you know, so it's it's not the case that just thinking differently about mental illness makes it go away. It's uh, These are hard, difficult problems. Um, one of the questions is when somebody is, so this is a big open scientific question. Is there a real difference between psychosis, the kind of person who ends up in our culture carrying the diagnosis of schizophrenia, and trance, which is more like dissociation and is something that people move into and out of? And in both of those conditions, People develop, have, have visions and, you know, auditory experiences. Um, and so some scholars want to say all auditory experience is trance-related. And so they'd be completely sympathetic to what you'd said. Um, there are other people who will say, well, maybe that's sometimes true, and maybe the relationship between psychosis and trance is much more complicated than we think, but there are some people who just 
end up being really, really sick. That said, I also think there's room for the observation that if, you know, it's clear that when people are falling ill in the way that people fall ill with a condition we call schizophrenia in our culture, it's usually pretty awful. They feel awful about it. They feel stigmatized. They feel cut off. And our culture gives them a lot of implicit signals that what's going on is truly weird. And I think if people were in a setting in which there were a more tightly knit society and their experiences could be interpreted more religiously, fewer of them would end up in the difficult state that we call schizophrenia. So it's, you know, I I think it's sort of romantic to think that, you know, if somebody were falling ill in that, that everybody who is at, at, at risk of schizophrenia in our country could be a black elk. I think that's, I think that's a wonderful vision, but I, I don't, I don't think it's probably, I don't think it's true. It, but I think it is true that more people would be black, like black elk like if we were able to help them imagine what was going on with them in a different kind of way. Right. Yeah, there's no question that that in some cases we're talking about organic brain disease or trauma of some sort or or congenital defects or what what have you. But yeah, I think you're right that there's a, a who knows what the margin is uh that exactly. that's determined by culture and expectation. And and you know, we are I think it's important for everyone in in this area to keep in mind just how sort of arbitrary uh these designations are what's it, what's sickness and what's not uh, you know we're just coming out of a period where homosexuality was considered to be a sickness exactly and and all the things that you mentioned you know the the sort of cultural message that uh what you what you're feeling is wrong it's sick it's disgusting it's you know all that those messages were and still are to a large extent very uh very audible to people who are going through those things absolutely and i think americans think about their minds in a kind of weird way so we tend to think of our minds as intensely private we tend to think of our thoughts as they're really important but we can't control them they just happen they burble away it's um that's a pretty idiosyncratic way of thinking and when people end up hearing the voices associated with with psychosis i think it's easier for them to feel assaulted in this in this culture than in other cultures because it it's just such a seems like there's something going wrong with your mind and that's just a terrifying thought right and the base assumption is that you can't control it Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there have you looked into uh, the sort of interaction of Buddhist meditation and uh, the advent of, of psychotic experiences? In other words, I'm talking about people who come from a tradition where that sense of the inner voice being controllable through meditation mm-hmm. is is widespread. So there's a lot of interesting work on, well, I mean, now when people do this, they talk about it as mindfulness. Right. So um, there's no reason to think that uh, psychosis is less prevalent in 
Buddhist countries. In fact, if anything, it may be a little more prevalent. But you're more, say, in um, societies uh, in Southeast Asia, I think there's some evidence to suggest that the experience of psychosis is more common, but it, but the return to normalcy is also more common. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not confident of that, but I think that that is, I, th- I think that that may be true. That's fascinating. Listen, I know you're very busy and, uh, and you've been very generous with your time. So I have one more question for you and yeah. then I'll let you get back to, to real life. Um, you know, I... I'm, I've interviewed uh, several uh, sort of leading um, thinkers in the militant atheism world recently. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the points that comes up in I, – I, I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. I'm not a religious believer, but I, when I'm talking with these people, I – Often, and they all seem to be men for some reason. I don't know if there's a biological thing there. But I feel like I'm in the presence of a true believer. Yes, absolutely. It's it's very much a religion. Oh, okay, good. I can quote you on that. (laughs) So in what sense do you mean that? Is it you're talking about the emotional experience of people or the certainty? Or is there an ideological consistency? What, What do you mean when you say it's a religion? Well, so belief is easy and belief is hard. Um, I think it is true that um, there's something that's part of human experience that makes makes us think when we think quickly and easily into and intu- quickly, automatically, intuitively. It's we overinterpret agency, for want of a better term. We fill the world with meaning, and that includes supernatural stuff. So it's very, very easy for people to. Um, you know, I have to have supernatural-ish experiences. It's really hard to sustain that as a commitment. You need to do work to, you know, continue to experience God as real and relevant in your life. What I see the atheist is doing as doing a lot of hard work to make their atheism uh, clear and uh, a, a, a you know, consistent view of their, their world. Justin Barrett does a lovely job with this. He's um, a evolutionary psychologist who is also an evangelical Christian. And one of the things he points out is that atheism's, atheism is really hard to sustain. If you look at the context of human history, there are very few atheists. You manage to sustain your atheism by talking to people, by uh, surrounding yourself with non-believers, and by asserting your non-believing status. Um, and so it's much easier to be an atheist uh, now than it would would have been 60 years ago. Mm. Uh, and so, But anyway, I mean, it, it's, that's, so, so I'm partly teasing when I say that atheism is, is a religion. I think one of the things that you see the new atheist doing is doing exactly what Justin Barrett describes, which is working very hard to attend to the evidence and to assert the meaning of the evidence to other people. Right, right. And the the discipline, that's a really good point I hadn't thought about, the the discipline of maintaining uh, atheism and sort of refining the core beliefs in a way is is very religious. Are you are you working on another book at this point? I am. I'm putting together a collection of essays on religion. Okay, and when will when will that be out? Do you know? Well, I'm hoping to deliver it in um, 
sometime in this in the spring or summer. Ah, good, good. I like I like that uh, sort of loose deadline. I'm trying to convince my editor to give me one at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a different editor. And there is um, hopefully there's a collection of essays on uh, case studies on schizophrenia that will come out um, a little earlier, and that's actually with the publisher now. Oh, great. Well, listen, thank you so much. I, I, I sincerely believe that you're doing very important work uh, by calling attention to the way in which these, these issues are determined by culture. And hopefully we can adjust that in a way that will alleviate some suffering. Thank you very much. You're doing good work, too. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say to the ground.